Welcome to the NICU Dad Podcast, a podcast for NICU dads by NICU dads. I'm Alex Zavala, a father to two preemie girls, Mia, who was born at 30 weeks, and Emerson, who was born at 27 weeks. Combined, my wife Jen and I both spent over 100 days in the NICU. After my last NICU experience, I started the NICU Dad. I did this to try and fill the gap of information and support that was lacking for NICU dads. Be sure and check out thenicudad.com and hopefully you will find it a useful resource. In this podcast, we will cover many topics that NICU parents face, but from the NICU dad's perspective. Topics such as premature birth, bereavement, PTSD, and many others. These dads who you'll hear share their stories in hope of letting other NICU dads know they are not alone. In this episode, we talk to Adam Wood. Adam is a retired military leader and a first-time author who lives in South Windsor, Connecticut. He is the father of a 25-week-old, one-pound, four-ounce micro-preemie named Brady, who spent 135 days in the NICU with his wife, Jen. Wanting to give back to the NICU community after his son had survived, Adam wrote and funded the upcoming book, Our Preemie Adventures, which chronicles the journey he and other premature families go through in the NICU. The book uses humor, heartwarming moments, and celebrates the milestones these children achieve as they work towards going home. He hopes the humor and shared experiences will allow families to see the NICU a little less different and help to heal the wounds. Along with writing the book, Adam currently works with a variety of organizations to help premature families and sits on the Family Advisory Council for his local children's hospital. His goal is to bring the concept of preemie adventures to be a mantra for all families to bond over. And in today's episode, we want to welcome Adam Wood. Adam, uh, we really, really appreciate you uh, being on here today and and uh, sharing your story with us. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, well, you know, our NICU journey was, um, you know, very unique, but it's also like a lot of journeys that are out there. Um, our, uh, we went through, prior to the NICU, we went through about a year and a half of in vitro to conceive. And part of the reason why we went through in vitro was because my wife suffers from PKD which is a kidney disease, a genetic disorder, which causes cysts to grow on her kidneys. Uh, and in fact, as a result of not only is her disease, but the, the process of labor and everything that she's gone through in the NICU with our son, um, she's actually on the kidney transplant list because that, that whole process actually depleted her quite a bit. So we are actually going through that as well. But um, we had gone through this whole process in the hopes that potentially we could not pass that gene down because my wife understood what that was. Her mom had gone through it and had a transplant, her uncles as well. And while we wanted to have children, we wanted to try to avoid, if we could, pass that gene down. So unfortunately, we went through the process. We went to Yale, uh, New Haven, um, and we went through several miscarriages in that process. And we really weren't able to alleviate finding the gene that was you know, responsible for that, but we still decided to go through with the process with in vitro um, and try to conceive through that way. And we, we went through, like I said, you know, several miscarriages, which was heartbreaking. And I know a lot of um, moms out there and dads out there that end up having preemies. Um, usually a lot of them are, are going through in vitro and other processes. So that adds on to their pain as well, the whole process of getting there. And then my wife has been, was a trooper throughout it. I mean, she really, really was 
the strongest person I know. And, and to talk with her sometimes, you, you think that wouldn't be the case. And she's, you know, very uh, passive and, and very relaxed and doesn't like to be out in the front at all. But, I mean, she really was this warrior throughout everything from the NICU and, and the whole the whole lead up to it. Um, we were finally able to, um, you know, have in vitro worked. And to be honest, it was pretty much at our last point. We we had gone through so many miscarriages that we were just like, maybe it's not meant to me. Maybe we need to adopt. You know, maybe there's something else that's telling us we need to do with our lives. And, and our you know, finally we were able to go through and, and it worked. And my wife just was amazing. She was driving two hours every day, twice a week, up to Albany from Connecticut, um, getting her treatments, getting lipids done to give her fat to help, you know, take, um, you know, the process and going through all of that and doing all the injections. And, and I joke around, but um, if you ever have to give injections, it's not the thing that you want to do to your wife. And she would come up with these like black and blues and things like that. And I would look at her and say, please don't tell people that I'm abusing you because it looked like I was like hitting her and doing all this stuff. And she would laugh and kind of smile at me, but she never really said she wouldn't. So, um, that was kind of a running joke with us, but, um, we, we got through that process and we got to, uh, about 22 weeks. And then Jen, as a result of her uh, kidney disease developed very high blood pressure. Um, so she was in the ICU, at uh, about 22 weeks um, for about a week. So we spent quite a bit of time there um, talking with doctors and all of them to learn about the process and whether or not our son was okay and whether or not she was okay. So not only were we struggling with her life, but his life at the same time and wondering, this is our last chance. And seeing it kind of slowly drift away was harder and harder with each day and wondering if we would have to terminate to save her life. And I know that she wanted it so, so bad. And she wanted to be a mom so, so bad. And it's part of the reasons why I married her, because when I met her, I knew not only was she a great person, but she would be the best mom in the world. Like, she exudes that mom spirit that I love you, I'll do anything for you, I'm such a sweet mom. And that's one of the things I fell in love with her. And to see her go through this process and to break down and to cry and to go through all that pain and everything she went through the lead up was very hard to do as a, as a man, as a dad. And you're so helpless. There's nothing you can do except be there and hold her hand. And you feel completely helpless in that situation. And, you know, we got out of the hospital and about a week and a half later, um, we went back to a follow-up appointment. We were just about 24 weeks or so, and the doctor, you know, said, "Listen, you know, he's tracking a little bit behind. We don't think he's going to make it. We may have to abort." And my wife just broke down. Like she cried a cry I've never heard before, and I could just feel her body shaking as I'm trying to hold on to her and to comfort her and to avoid the tears coming down my own face because as a guy, you don't know if you should cry or not cry. Do I, do I feel that emotion with her or do I be stoic and allow her to re- release on me and be there for her in that moment? And it was just very hard to balance one of the two. And I remember looking at the doctor and pulling her aside and said, 
don't you ever say that to her, ever, about aborting the baby, about any of that stuff. And as a result of that conversation and, and the feedback, she ended up having to be admitted to the hospital mm-hmm. uh, once again. And we were under observation, and the doctor said, listen, we're going to try to get to 28 weeks. That meant her being in the hospital for a couple weeks at this point now. She would have to be. Um, and I remember we were like, okay, we're going to get to 28 weeks, and we were just past that 24-week mark, and the viability was so low. But, um, you know, and then four days later, our son Brady was on his way. We only got a few extra days to get us just past the 25-week mark, um, and he was already kind of undersized even for a 25-weeker. And I remember I came in on a Friday and at 8 a.m., and, I had all these gifts from the gift shop for my wife and all the stuff that she wanted. And I remember saying, you're going to be a dad today. And I just remember being the most excited and most scared I'd have ever been in my entire life. I, I felt like I was drunk on emotions because I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what a 25-week baby was. I read the books and did all the research. And for the most part, this baby's not going to be very big. And as a dad, you kind of think in your head, what does a 25-weeker look like? You know, you're, you're thinking, you see what a 40-weeker looks like, um, and they're pretty big. Like, this can't be very much bigger. Uh, you know, this can't be a, a very large life. And, you know, my wife got prepped up, and uh, at noon that day at, at, at 12.03, um, you know, my son was born. And, I remember my wife was, you know, behind the curtain and they're, they're doing the C-section and all that stuff to get the baby out. And I remember my wife was just constantly itchy from the, the stuff that they were giving her. So I was constantly scratching her face and asking me what was going on. And I just didn't know what was going on. And, and you wait for that, that cry and you don't hear it. And I remember thinking something's wrong or I just need some reassurance of what's going on. And thankfully, our, our our nurse, Sam, who had been there, you know, with us throughout the week, said he's got the cutest little button nose. And I was like, okay, step one, I, it, he's alive, he's got a button nose, that's about as much as I know right now. And I remember him, you know, being brought and ushered into the next room and didn't get a chance to see him. And I remember them coming to me and saying, you know, Mr. Wood, do you want to meet your son? And my wife is you know, they're getting sewn up and all of that stuff. And I just was like, I don't know if I want to do this. I, I felt guilty for being the first one to see our son. My wife had gone through so many miscarriages, all the pain, the injections, the the constantly being tired, the back and forth, her blood pressure, all the stuff she had gone through to bring this life, and I was going to be the first person to see him. And... I felt she had just been robbed of so many things, and a lot of moms out there do. They get robbed of the, you know, painting the room, decorating the um, baby showers, and all the great things that come with being pregnant. The ability to eat foods without feeling guilty and getting cravings. I mean, she hadn't even got to that point yet. And I just remember feeling so guilty, but I asked at the same time, if this was the last time I was going to see him alive, not knowing what was going to be ahead, I at least wanted to see him and let her know what he looked like or something or be able to reassure her. And I remember I walked into the room and it was like a pit crew of, of people. They had 
one person just hand-pumping each breath into him, and all these doctors are congratulating you and everything, and you're like, you don't know how to feel. Like, how do you, you know what they mean, but you don't know how to how to react and feel. You're still in this whole shock, and you see this little tiny life, and he was, at that point was only one pound, four ounces, and about 10 inches long. I could literally put my hands over his entire body and cover him, and he was just this little scrawny thing with these ugly ET-looking feet. I remember looking at him going, God, I hope he grows into those feet because they're just so long. And it was, it was crazy to see him like that, but he was also the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen in my entire life. And he couldn't look at me. I mean, his eyes were closed. I couldn't see a lot of the features with, that you would normally see with a baby, but he was mine. And I remember looking at him and just saying, please, God, let everything be okay. Like, please make this okay. And they took him out. My wife got to see a, a brief glimpse of him, and then he was brought to the NICU. And, um, you know, my wife, Jen, we, we brought her downstairs, and, you know, she had to do the whole pumping thing. And I remember the doctors were looking at her and said, okay, Jen, um, I know you're only 25 weeks, and you haven't even done your Lamada classes or, or breastfeeding classes or anything like that, but I need you to start pumping now. And she's just looked at the doctor and said, say what? Like, I got I to gotta do what? I got to start this whole process? She's like, I'm not prepared. I didn't study. Like, I'm not ready for all this. And I looked at her and said, we got this. And she looked at me and said, no, I really don't got this because I'm so numb from the surgery. I can't feel most of my body. So I actually had to hold my wife up um, and so she could actually dip her body to be able to start pumping and everything to get milk for her son. And I, miraculously, it's crazy that you're, you're 15 weeks early from when you're supposed to start this whole process and nature tells you. And all of a sudden, nature just suddenly knew, hey, you're ready to go. I know we're a bit early, but, you know, she was able to start getting milk going, which I think really did help her at least feel a little more connected at that point and, and feel like more part of the process than she had been. And, um, you know, we were able to get that down to the NICU and, and start giving that to him, which was a great thing. But, um, you know, my wife didn't get a chance to see him for the first 24 hours. And um, I remember I had to go down to the NICU and I, I met who would become one of the most important people in our lives over the next four months, but over the next three years as well. But, our, our nurse, Ellen, and um, Ellen brought me around, and she wasn't even his assigned nurse, but she saw something in, in us, or maybe him, and she knew how much we wanted it and how invested we were in him, and she brought me around to this area and said, this is where he's going to be at, and she talked me through everything, and, you know, she showed me there's these other children right here. They're 25-weekers, and she gave me a little bit of hope, um, and she showed me my son, and you know, she let me ask all the questions, and it still was overwhelming to see your baby with all these wires coming out and these ventilators and these systems. I mean, he was hooked on oxygen, and he had the pick line going through his stomach, and he had, you know, his whole body covered with just wires and everything just all over. You could hardly make out him. And I just remember looking at him and being amazed that he was alive and and just wondering if this was going to be the last time because you just don't know you 
don't know what to expect at these moments. And I remember that I talked with the nurse and I got all the information and I was like, I've got to bring this back to my wife. And I remember I left there and before I went up to the next floor, I stopped in the chapel and I cried for about five minutes straight. There was nobody there. And I cried and just let it out. And I just told God, please just make this better. Please do anything you can. Please help us, you know, give us the strength to get through this day and the days ahead. And then went up and, you know, told my wife how I was doing, you know, gave her updates and all of that so she could feel a little more connected. And then we were finally able to go down into the NICU and, um, you know, get a chance for him to see him. And I remember seeing, I remember seeing her and you could just tell she didn't know how to react. I had had 24 hours. I had time to process and talk to nurses, but she had nothing but time to sit there in her bed and think about what was going on. She didn't really get a chance to think about it. She had no clue other than what I was telling her and the nurses were telling her what to expect either. And I remember thinking, man, at least I've gotten this 24 hours to process. She's just getting this now and dealing with all of this. And again, as a, as a husband and as a father, I couldn't help either of them. You know, I could only hold her hand and, and listen to her and try to reassure her. And for my son, I could do even less at that moment. It was medicine, doctors, injections, it's everything. And I, I felt like I couldn't even touch him. And, you know, it, it took, I think, a couple of days for her and I to get used to everything that was going on. I think we were in a lot of shock. Um, you know, I remember my parents and my, my in-laws being there and just, they were so proud and all of that. And I, I, they were excited and I wasn't, I was, I was scared. I, I didn't know how to react. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to process everything and make things better because we as, as men and as fathers and as dads, we're there to fix things. We're there to protect our kids, to protect our wives. And in that moment, I felt like I was a failure at that. I could not do anything. There was anything in my body I could will to do that in that moment. And it sucks because you want to be able to make things better. You want them to be able to turn to you and make everything all right. You want to be able to take that pain away, even if it's you know, absorbing it and take every ounce of their pain into you and you feel it only, you can't do that. That's not how life works. That's not how we do things and process things. And it would be great if we could, but I just couldn't do that. And it was a, it was a long process with Brady. Um, he, you know, he was always a little bit behind in, in everything. And we were on um, the oscillator, um, and the ventilator and we were on oxygen blends and, you know, I remember we would go back and forth every day and we'd walk through those doors and I'm sure that you know it and every dad here knows it. You scrub up, you get your hands to completely be clean as can be. And then the butterflies, if they're not already there, are there as you're getting ready to turn that corner or to walk over to that bed to see how the night went. And, Every day that we were there, no matter how good the day before was, 
I always got those butterflies every single time. It never went away. Um, and even to this day, sometimes I'll get the butterflies of walking into his room, making sure he's okay to check up on him. And he's almost three years old actual now. And I still get those butterflies occasionally where I think back and go, man, I hope he's okay. And I just randomly go check on him in the middle of the night. But I remember we had that and I would walk in every day and talk with them and it became our routine. We dedicated our lives to him and we were there for every round. We talked with the doctors. We got everything from them and we gave them feedback. I mean, we were the subject matter experts and for dads that are out there listening you are you are an advocate for your child, and you should always be an advocate, and you should never be afraid because you are a, a father to voice your opinion. Because if any time there's a time to voice your opinion, it's then. That's when you can protect your child from, you know, things that you feel inside of you are not right. I remember that there were times when my son, they would say, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to take him off that, and I would say, I don't think it's right because... I watched his stats for the last 12 hours today. Your monitors could tell me all this, but I watched him and I reacted to his, his up and down with his breathing and his oxygen and O2 levels. I don't think he's ready. And there were many times where they would go ahead and try it and he'd, go, he'd dip back down again and, and go back to where they were at. And, you know, I always trusted my gut in there, but I always asked the questions. I always talked to them about, what are the alternatives? You know, how can we combat this? How can we combat that? And I think that's where parents can get involved. You know, be more proactive in your child's care because it's not just the doctors there, it's you. You know, you have a lasting effect on that baby. You can do so many things to impact their health more than you realize. And I remember that we would read every day to him. I would read religiously everything. There were books that were there. My in-laws and parents would bring books I'd read. I would bring history books. I love history. I would read, you know, the kid knows about Andrew Jackson, the War of 1812. I would actually read to him history books, uh, journals that the staff left behind, you know, doctor stuff about the, the NICU. I would read to him because I could watch his stats and watch them go up as he listened to my voice. Or if I held my hand over him and touched his body, his stats would rise up. And sometimes I remember sitting there with my both hands in the isolate, my wife on the other side, holding him and doing that care. And your hands would go numb from keeping them in there for so long because every time you pull them away, stats would dip down to like 88, 82. Then it would go back up to 90, 95. And you become so superstitious. Like you start wearing the same shirt because he had a great day when you wore it that day. And it's just like the little thing oh, that yeah. you start. Yeah, like, you, I'm not a superstitious guy, but, like, I got to wear these same pair of socks. And it, it's kind of like sports fanatics. You kind of, you have these same routines, and you get into that. And, you know, we went through all that with him, and, and we had an amazing staff of nurses that were invested and loved him to death and saw we were we were so invested in him and wanted nothing but the best. And there's a lot of families out there that are like that, too, and and that's great. But there's also a lot of families, and I'm, you know, I'm sure that if you've been there, you've seen that, a lot of families that just never showed up either, whether they couldn't or they just didn't, and you just 
kind of watch and you felt sorry for some of these, you know, babies that are there. And sometimes I just wanted to go over and hold them and read to them and say, it's going to be okay because you'd, you'd be there for 15 hours and nobody would show up every single day for them. And you just want to go over and be like, you know, can I just read to them? They're like, no, you can't do that. And you just want to kind of be there because you know the impact it makes. But, um, you know, the hardest day was just before he came off of oxygen. And it's the day that I always want to remember and never forget. And people think it's the weirdest thing, but I remember it was a, it was a Friday and my wife had called me and we had thought we had just made a turn and everything was going well. And she called me and she said, you need to get to the hospital now. And I remember thinking, she's never called me like this. And I was at work and I dropped everything and I drove as fast as I can to the hospital. And that drive from my house to the hospital felt like an eternity. It felt like I was just a solitary confinement with my own thoughts. Like I couldn't turn the radio up loud enough to distract myself. I was just thinking of the worst possible situation. And I remember getting through there and coming around the corner and I remember seeing our nurse Ellen and Amy, who was another nurse who became a huge impact and my in-laws and my wife. And I remember seeing the yellow curtain and the you know, dividers that they have all around our son. And at that point, he had so many oxygen tanks. He was on 100% oxygen. He was on everything that he could do at that point for him. And they had bagged him that, that morning, um, and we had almost lost him. And I remember crying over his isolate. I remember the tears coming down, like rain hitting a, a tin roof and just pouring on and my nurse Ellen and my wife trying to hold me up because I was crying so hard. And I remember begging God to please take me that just let him be okay. I'm okay if you just take me now. I've had a good life. I just want you to, to keep him safe and that it's not fair and that I did everything right and I just remember thinking it was the worst day of my life. I had, I've survived two wars. I have done so many things in my life, from jumping out of airplanes to, you know, being in combat. And I was never more scared and terrified than I was that day. But that day is a defining moment in my life. Everyone has that one moment or two moments that defines you. And sometimes it's the birth of your child. Sometimes it's your, your, your marriage. Sometimes it's something else. But that moment was my moment. And for as dark as it was, it changed me forever because we weren't sure what was going to happen to him. And I just, I, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and we even had the priest come up and and baptize our son in the isolate with this little shell and just bless him because we didn't know what was going to happen. That could be the last day I ever saw him again, and that would be the end of our story. But it wasn't. God blessed us 
and allowed him to live, and he started to take a turn over the next 24, 48 hours. And eventually things got to a much better point where he started to come off the oxygen, going to CPAP, and all of those other steps as you make towards going home. But that moment, I never, ever, ever want to forget that moment because every time I think something's bad, every time I feel down on myself, every time I look at my son and he does something that I don't want him to do or he's acting up and being bratty and being a two-year-old, I think back to that day and everything else doesn't matter because that day I almost lost him. And I carry that pain not because I want to carry the pain for because I like pain. It's because that day made me appreciate the rest of the days that followed. So anytime that I ever get to a point where I'm content or I'm, you know, in a moment where I feel like I'm not, things aren't going right for me and think, and, and life is, is getting too overwhelming. I think to that day and say, it's not that day. So everything could be okay. And, and that moment allowed me to change how I do things in my life, how I look at it, how I value my son, how every moment from then on, every experience that I had with him was cherished tenfold. And I always will keep that with me, and I always will do everything in my power now as a parent and getting involved now with you know, the NICU community and preemie families and other dads and other people so that people that are going through that same day that I went through, you know, whatever, or days or weeks that I went through, that they don't have to deal with that alone or one less person has to deal with that because we make strides where it's a lot easier for these kids to be getting through the NICU and to have a higher survivability rate. And he is why I do everything going forward in my life, not only for him, but for other kids, for my family and, and everything that I do, I do because of that moment, because God gave me a second chance to change my life, to make a difference in my son's life, to be a good role model for him, a parent for him, and to do things for other people to ease their pain. So I always will remember that day. And I wish that I could take that pain from other dads that are feeling, but it's okay to feel that pain. It's okay to break down. You know, if you're listening to this, if you've had that moment, talk to somebody, let it out, let your wife, your spouse, your significant other know that you're vulnerable. It's okay to let that stuff out because if you let it, internalize it will eat you away it will change you as a person and you won't be able to be the good dad that you need to be so I always tell people to try to talk to somebody find somebody out there that can understand your pain and I I've always told people that the NICU while I have been through it you have been through it you know listeners have been through it and other people around the world have been through it every journey is unique my journey, while it may sound bad to, to somebody else, way worse, doesn't discount your journey. Every journey is different. Every situation is different. And 
don't ever judge another person's journey because you never know what they're going through internally, at home, the balance that they have to have. You know, I, I've heard your story before, um, and to be able to, I don't know what it's like to have to balance having a child at home and having to do that and a wife and all these other places. And I'm sure that there's parents out there that have, you know, kids at home and kids in other places. My own, my own niece had recently, during COVID, she had preemie twins at the same hospital and the same caregivers that we had. And I can't imagine being that during COVID and not being able to be there with your spouse to be a part of that two-person system. Yeah. So there's a lot of people out there that are going through a lot of things, and your journey is unique. Um, I'm not here to tell anyone, you know, how to feel or anything like that. And your journey is, is sacred to you, but there are people out there that understand and there are people that are willing to listen. And I'm glad that there are things like this, like the Nick You Dads podcast that you're doing and others that are out there that are giving a voice and giving an ability for people to get these experiences, not only off their chest, because I feel like when you talk about it, while it's hard, it relieves a weight off your chest. You know, we carry all these weights and pebbles and stones. And every time you share an experience like that, it takes a little bit off your chest and allows you to breathe a little more because you're able to get that off and be honest about what's going on in the world and what's going on in your feelings. And maybe that helps somebody else as well. So um, I'm glad that there are things like this available for dads. Oh, that's, that's perfect. Um, you know, you talk about that day and, so many of us experience days like that and our lives do change and you know it it does make you almost at least in your own eyes feel like you appreciate things more um those days you know every day is a blessing when you've had a day like that it's it's even sweeter i think but you guys you know, so he turned around and, you know, obviously things got better and you started hitting more milestones and things like that. What was it like for you towards the, I don't want to say the end of your NICU journey because it, it once you go home, it still continues. But Exactly. Um, what were some of the things that you saw and that you guys experienced um, towards that, I guess, leaving the NICU and even after the NICU, uh, what kind of things did you have to deal with, um, you know, medically and, and things like that for your, for Brady? Oh, wow. Well, yeah, we had quite a bit. So, um, not only did, you know, my son, he had chronic lung disease, um, so he had a lot of respiratory issues. So, um, for the entire stay and until, you know, we went home actually on oxygen, um, so low grade oxygen, so we had to go home on that. Um, so that was its own experience, but we also ended up getting a G-tube um, and getting his hernias fixed. Um, and then when we got home, we also had to deal with the helmet because a lot of these, these babies that are there, especially the ones that are very small, um, they're on their back a lot. You know, they're on their heads. So uh, we actually had to get two helmets um, for our son to kind of help reform his head because he had a bit of a flat head, as they say. Um, and so we were kind of dealing with all that. Not only did we have the oxygen and the foot probe to monitor the foot probe and all that, um, we had, you know, uh, the polyvisol, we had, you know, all the medications that he had to have. So we actually, you know, when we 
got him home finally. Um, it, it was in October, about a month after his due date, because his due date was September 5th. He was born May 25th. Um, you know, we, we got to go home, and it was right around Halloween, which was, was great, and got him home. And I just remember, like, trying to set everything up. We had our own Purell station um, and everything, so I... I joke around. I was like, I was ready for the pandemic before the pandemic was even cool. Like I had, I still have Purell boxes out the yin yang and I have a Purell station still to this day, right in my front door. So every time you walk in, you, you Purell up, you do all your stuff and you're good to go. We, we kind of built our own home, um, you know, nursing station. So we had everything set up, ready to go for him. Um, and the first couple of weeks we actually spent sleeping on the couch downstairs in our living room and taking turns sleeping upstairs because um, at that point he had the foot probe on the oxygen and the oxygen only had like a limited slack of the, that you could have. So it was like 50 feet. So we would have to like pick up and move the oxygen all the way up and have this big, heavy oxygen tank, you know, or oxygen, I guess, ventilator system. So you'd plug it in. It was like loud and we'd have to bring that up and down the stairs. So we just said the first few weeks, screw it. We're just going to sleep down here with him um, and deal with all that. We had the foot probe going off every two minutes. So if you think the NICU sucks, but the, the, the alarm's going off, imagine coming back to home and then having the foot probe go off every two seconds and you have to fix it and reset it and all of that. So not a lot of sleep was had in, in the in the Wood household uh, those first couple of months, but we were able to get through that and – a lot of people say, well, how did you get through it? And you just get through it. I mean, you get into a kind of a groove of things and you get used to the G-Tube and hooking that up and how do you do your feeds and timing it. And you start learning little tricks and stuff like that. And it's weird because once you become a, a G-Tube kid or an oxygen kid, you learn all the tricks of the trade of different things and you feel like you're kind of ready for nursing school or, or some sort of med school at that point because you've, you've gotten you so used to doing so many things. And um, for parents out there that are fearful of the G-tube, um, our son next week is at three is finally going to get it out. He hasn't used it for over a year. I will say while it can be an inconvenience, it is also a blessing in disguise. So if you've got the doctors telling you right now that you're going home on that, it could be overwhelming to understand, all right, I've got to hook it up. I've got to do all this stuff. You will get into a groove. You'll be able to do it in your sleep. You'll get to the point where you'll be able to do it in the middle of the night, turn it all off, unhook it, be good to go. You are going to have some accidents. It's okay. You know, there are plenty of times I forgot to unhook the tube or unclamp it and messes happened and things like that. Um, at the end of the day, you know, you, you don't want to cry over spilled milk, but I guess if maybe you're not producing enough milk, maybe you can cry a little bit over that. But, um, you know, we we went through a lot of different things with him, um, and the G2 really helped us out, especially in, in the winter time when he wasn't taking to the bottle quite a bit. I mean, my, my son really had a poor suck, so he never got a chance to latch on. So he really didn't take to the bottle very well. So the G2 really helped us pack on the pounds, and allow him to gain weight even in the winter months when he wasn't, you know, feeling well and all that. We were able to just still get that medicine in him and all that, things like that. As he got older, we were still able to do that. So in a way, it really was a blessing. Um, 
and we're glad that we got it in hindsight. At the time, it seemed like the end of the world, but it really was not. Um, there, are, there are far harder things that are out there that a lot of parents do deal with, um, but after three years of, of having it, I can honestly say it's not as bad as, as a lot of people make it out to be. Um, and the first couple times it pops out, you panic, and then you figure out how to pop that bad boy back in, and you're in business. I mean, my wife became an old pro at it. I mean, she didn't get grossed out. She just pops it right in. It's good to go. So, um, yeah, we, we went through quite a bit. Um, a lot of back and forth with GI, pulmonary, um, and during the pandemic, you know, obviously with all that, most of it was virtual. Um, a lot of, you know, tele-ed stuff. We, we had a lot of appointments the first year. It felt like the first six months was three, four appointments a week. Um, and that's a process because it's both of us because we've got to bring his oxygen tank, his pulse ox, um, all of his stuff, his diapers, everything else like that. So, again, it was it's a two-person team to do all of this stuff to keep this little person alive. And, um, you know, we did it. So I'm proud to say we kept we kept them alive and didn't have any issues. And, uh, you know, we had a home nurse that came in, and we also had, you know, different people come in to help him along the way with – his growth and development and different things like that. Um, so there's a lot of great programs that are out there. We here in Connecticut, we have birth to three. Um, so they were able to really help them that first year with motor skills, things like that, that kids don't pick up on as much, um, especially to catch up with, you know, being able to eat a little bit better. And that's kind of a struggle. So, you know, if you're struggling with that, it's okay. You're not a bad parent. Um, you know, normal kids do that. I didn't have any other kids. So, I always looked at it and said, this is my one and only. I don't know how to judge if he's eating good or not. You know, you can't look at it and say, okay, well, so-and-so was the same way, so this is normal. So for us, we kind of panicked a little bit more, and I think that first six months or year, we definitely talked to the doctor a lot more than we probably should, but, you know, that's just the life of a pre-parent. You're, yeah. you're constantly on the phone with doctors and reassuring them, and they're reassuring you, and, you know, they're used to it. They know you're a preemie parent, so... They're, you know, they're okay with letting you know you're doing a great job. And I think that was a good thing with our, our pediatrician and primary care people is they always took the time to let us know you're doing a great job. You're keeping them alive. They're thriving because of you. And I think that helped us along the way. We just weren't sure if we were doing a great job. That's awesome. Yeah, we always, you know, we talk about now um, looking at after NICU care for NICU parents and support in, in that where – you know, you go through the the NICU stay and all the stresses that you deal with and all the things you bring home from that, PTSD and different things like that. But now you are now responsible <laughs> to take care of oxygen, G-tube, everything else. And so rather than being able to relax and try to go back to normal, things now get amped up. And so you see those stress levels uh, increase, actually, especially for NICU dads going, going home. Um, did you experience things like that? Oh yeah. I mean, definitely stress levels, uh, you know, with being able to take care of them and feeling it, am I, am I up to this? And I don't want to, you know, mess things up, but I think, um, it's the fight or flight. It's, it's ingrained in our natural nature. It's the fight or flight. And I think when you're a parent, but especially a premium parent, it's amped to like tenfold. It's, it's, I got to fight for my kids. I got to, I got to figure this out. I got to get this done. And eventually you just get into this mode and it, it's almost like an autopilot where your body 
like figures out how to sleep on less sleep and do all the things it needs to do because you need to do that for the time being. And, um, you know, the good thing is my wife and I communicated quite a bit. So we, we took turns with all the rotations. It was a 50, 50 throughout the whole process. It wasn't just one or the other. So, you know, we still had to do work. We still had to balance all of those things with him. So we found that balance. And I think the big thing that, um, I would say is communicate with your significant other, your spouse. Um, that's, that's a thing that men are kind of crappy at sometimes is the ability to communicate in general their feelings, but with their spouse. And so I've talked with other um, NICU moms and people, and they say, you know, my, my husband was either stoic, didn't talk about it, I didn't know his feelings, and it's been years later, and they still don't haven't had that conversation. And for me, when we went through the experience, there were days where I would turn to my wife, and, and most days I'd be the one that, kept it together, but there would be some days I turned to her and say, I need you to be the rock. Not Dwayne Johnson. I need you to be super hard granite rock and get me through this experience today. Allow me to just sit back, focus on our son, and not have to deal with anything else, and just be the strong one. And that's important because it allows you to get mentally prepared that I need to be that one today. And I think when guys get that break Every now and then, as they're, if they're in their state, if their NICU stays pretty long, too, you need that. You need that ability to just shift your focus to other things, whether it's just reading to your kid, listening to some music by their bed, whatever you need to do, um, read a book while you're there. And that's important because that's part of your self-care. You can't be the be-all. You can't be the doing everything all at once and taking care of everything all at once. It's got to be a team effort, and when you don't act like a team, that's where you start to break down. That's where you have those emotional breakdowns. That's where the, the miscommunication comes into place, and I think that's also where your breakdown in your marriage because you're, you're still balancing your marriage at the same time in this crazy experience, so there's other things that are in play. So you don't want to be have any ill will towards your spouse because – of any of these experiences. And I, I've heard, I've talked to other dads and other family members where they left the NICU and the NICU just ended up really destroying their relationship because of a variety of reasons. Um, you know, people that go through uh, loss with in vitro over and over again, it destroys their marriage because there is no communication. There is no free conversation back and forth openly to, about what they're feeling and getting that out. And it internalizes and people hold onto that and it, it really doesn't do you any good so talk to somebody if it's a therapist if it's a buddy if it's an old you know friend talk to somebody if you can't talk to your spouse because they're just going through so much you don't want to put it on their plate i get that but talk to somebody find somebody out there um that's willing to listen there's a ton of great for dads that are out there there's tons of great ones on facebook um there's tons of programs in which you can mentor you know, people and help them be there. Um, you know, I've helped mentor others and, and complete strangers that um, are going through these experiences. And it's allowed me, one, the ability to feel better that I'm helping somebody, but two, to get somebody in a better spot than I was at. Because, you know, when you become an, a, a NICU dad and when you become a pretty parent in general, most of the time you have absolutely no clue it's coming. You're, you're blindsided 
no one's giving you a manual on how to deal with this or what to go through. And if you're lucky, maybe you've had somebody in your life that has been through that. Um, for me, you know, my brother-in-law had been through it and had been about 15 or 16 years since he had been through it. But for him, you know, he was able to, to help allow me to call him and, and get some stuff off my chest, just me and him. And I think that's important to find that outlet during the process, you know, from beginning to when you get home and after the fact, you know, you need to be able to get that off your chest because once you get that stuff off your chest, you don't bring it into your marriage. You don't bring it into your relationship with your child. Like you, you've gotten that stuff off your chest and you're much better for it. Yeah. Speaking of outlets, um, great segue, by the way, um, (laughs) tell us about preemie adventures and some of the other stuff that you guys are involved with right now. Yeah, so as part of this whole process, you know, I wanted to give back. So I first, um, I started out with volunteering to be in the Family Advisor Council at our local hospital. Um, I've always been advocates for a variety of things, but um, I wanted the best care for families. And I was also appreciative of everything that the staff had done there for our son and our family. Um, I mean, they were really outstanding at Connecticut Children's. They did a fantastic job. Um, even, Even the guy that you know, park our cars and everything. The valet would sit and talk with us and ask us how our day was. I mean, he's such a great guy. So we had such a great experience. We really wanted to get back. So uh, we were, I've been volunteering there, doing my time to help families, um, to, to add more advocacy for dads and to have that, that perspective. Because, of course, when you get involved with anything, and, and you probably know as well, uh, when you get involved as a NICU dad in – the hospital, into charities and organizations, there's not a lot of dads there. It's it's almost like they, they see you, they go, uh, yeah, that'd be great. And you're like, okay, uh, am I the only dad on this call or, or what? And you're like, yeah. But it, it it's good to be able to do that. So um, I also ended up writing and completing a book called Our Premium Adventure. And the book really takes a humorous and heartwarming look at the journey that all of our children go through in the NICU. And and this journey particularly follows um, our journey, but so many others as well as I tried to encompass as many things as possible in it. And it looks at the milestones they achieve from, you know, coming off a CPAP to the G-tube to your first outfit. Things that we celebrate as preemie parents that other parents just take for granted. I mean, the first time you get to wear an outfit, sometimes it's several months in before you get to wear an outfit because they've got all these wires. So you're so ecstatic and all of these things that you're celebrating, their first bath, sometimes their first bath is in for a few weeks um, or longer because of their, their status. So I wanted to make a positive spin on the NICU and take use humor because I use it in every part of my life. And I think a lot of men are like that. We use humor and sarcasm. Um, especially if, if, if you have guy humor that's out there and women will say, I don't, you know, I don't get your humor, but we use humor to mask the pain and to mask dealing with hard situations. And I think that's always been a tool that I've used in my military career, my personal life. I've always tried to find the humor in the bad situations to get through it. So I looked at it and said, you know, I want this to be something fun, uplifting that parents can look at and say, yes, that's, that's totally what we went through today, yesterday, or I'm looking forward to when that happens. 
or if you're a parent like yourself who's been out of the NICU for a few years, to be able to look back and show your little one or just look back a little bit more fondly with the NICU and say, wow, you know, I remember the first bath. I remember these, these other days that were more positive and celebrate those great milestones. Um, so I'm really excited about the project, and it really has allowed me to, as I talked about that one point earlier, is focus and shift my life into how I can help people. So I'm starting to build not only on the book and having that come out in the next couple months, um, I'm building you know, premium adventures on social media and my website that's going to be up soon, and it's really going to be a point where parents can connect on a variety of things not only with uplifting humor that will help them get through the day and to bond over that shared experience, that mantra of the premium adventure. We all go through this together. We're all in this together because we share a unique memories. While some would not like to have those memories, we have a unique experience that a lot of parents don't. And I think it's almost, I want people to have it like a badge of courage and be able to look back and say, you know, I'm a premium parent, hear me roar, I'm I'm doing all these great things for my kids, and I see so many preemie parents out there and new families doing amazing things in the community. So I want preemie adventures to be something that continues on and to be able to have other organizations like Hands of Hold be featured there, places, people that are doing great work um, to be featured so that when they come to my website or when they come to the social media, they're getting that information shared with them on there as well so they can connect with whether it's dads or other moms or, or if they want to volunteer, they're looking for an outlet in their community locally. I'd like to be able to share that. We've got um, people from all the way from Australia to the UK right now that are on board. Uh, they're going to be on our site. They're going to be affiliates with us and they're going to, we're going to share their information so that families can be helped out in those situations and get the proper care. Uh, we're working as well to get, um, people that are caregivers, um, nurses, things like that, that will be on there providing um, blogs as well as support for families that want that. And it's all going to be free. Um, so we're all going to have that there. And, of course, um, we're also going to have donation sites. So that site will not only have a donation site where people can donate if they want to purchase um, our premium adventure and donate to their NICU, um, they can donate, you know, just street if they want to donate money or anything and every month we are going to be sending to a different NICU or organization that's out there doing great work, free books to them. Um, so if somebody wants to come, they can just donate whatever they want, and we're going to send, take all that money and send books to, you know, wherever that may be all across the U.S., and hopefully worldwide. So that is our, our big plan. So we are partnering with organizations that are out there that um, do care packages and things like that to help provide the books to families in need. Uh, and to provide as little cost, if any, to those organizations as well. So I really want this to be a big project that helps a lot of families out um, and for people to be able to come bond over that shared experience and really help change others' lives. And so if, if somebody's out there that wants to get involved, um, that is looking to that, you know, they can reach out to me at ourpremiadventures at gmail.com or uh, when the site's up, I'll have that up. It'll be premiadventures.com. Uh, we're going to have a lot of great things if they want to be featured on there. Uh, we certainly want to have people that are doing great work, podcasts, things of that sort, so that people can have an outlet and just connect. That's awesome, man. I, I mean, we're super excited. We can't wait. Um, I do have a question for you. Um, with your experience and all the things you're doing now, uh, what is 
some of your best advice for new NICU dads, uh, dads who are maybe one to two days in, maybe one day in, or even guys that are in, you know, for months, weeks right now. What's, what's your best advice for them? One is, as I said before, is communicate. Um, I, I stress that so much because the communication piece is important because sometimes you're going to have these, these things in your head that you're going to be thinking, and it's important to get that off and, and to not judge each other um, on those feelings because sometimes it's just you need to get that off your chest, and then it's off and you're able to move on. Another is take it one day at a time, one hour at a time, one moment at a time. Um, the NICU is, is not a it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's, it's day by day. Understand that, that things are going to go up and things are going to go down. And there's only so much you can do to control that. But I would also say be as active as you can in your child's life. You may not feel that you being by their bedside, reading to them or holding them or doing, you know, kangaroo care has that effect. But I, I cannot tell you how wrong you are if you feel that way. We spent so much time with our son as much as possible, holding him and connecting with him. And I honestly think that that played a big role in how we developed. And a lot of the doctors and nurses came over and said, you know, we really think we've seen kids that are in his position not make it so many times. And I think that is a part that you can play as a dad. Um, Don't be afraid to get involved in the care and to get in there and get used to that process because you need to work together as a team. Um, your wife's going to go through a lot of emotions and she's going to need you to be there. Um, or your partner's going to need to be, you be there, be there for her, you know, be, if it's just a, a sounding board to get her emotions out, then fine. Um, but also take care of yourself. It's a hard thing to do, but take some time when you're not in the NICU to do something for yourself physically and, and, and try to, to eat and do stuff to keep your body because you, you need to be able to get yourself through the NICU. It's a long process. So allowing yourself to kind of shut down and go into this mode where you're not eating, you're not sleeping is not going to do any good for you. Um, you know, you may want to be there every minute of every day, but that's impossible. You need to take some time to go home, decompress, um, you know, get ready and then come in the next day, you know, ready to go as positive as possible. Uh, That's great advice. Well, Adam and I can talk for days uh, with each other, <laughs> but we want to thank you so much for sharing the story and sharing your advice and and everything is so powerful. You got me. I did cry. Uh, but and once again, man, I can't thank you enough for doing this. And we wish you, Jen, Brady, all the best. And uh, wouldn't be surprised if uh, you hear Adam and I talking about some NICU dad uh topics and some of the things that that we struggle with uh but once again i appreciate it man uh we thank you so much uh, for being on here thank you for listening and thank you for your support once again please take a look at the nickudad.com we continue to grow the list of resources we are bringing nickyu dads to my fellow nickyu dads good luck and remember you are not alone